BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, September 16th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It seems like water makes the news pretty much all the time these days, whether it's flooding in Louisiana, France or Greece, drought in California or Zambia, the melting of ice caps, the pollution in our oceans or the scarcity of drinking water in developing countries, on and on and on. And scientists, of course, are warning that this is just the new normal as climate change quickens. So speaking of climate change, we also seem to be bombarded with evidence, but not so much potential solutions. Policy change seems to be next to impossible to implement globally. Individual practices like recycling or biking to work seem good, but also a little futile. And many of the definitive answers seem more like science fiction than science fact, like sending mirrors into space to reflect the sun's rays or other geoengineering solutions. So, When I heard about science journalist Judith Schwartz, whose recent book, Water in Plain Sight, suggests that water might not just be an effect of climate change, but also a potential solution, I was intrigued. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So you highlighted flooding in Louisiana, drought in California. By the way, drought in California fixed, right? We had a really big rain year last year. Yeah, but there's not. It, the solution isn't quite so simple as you'll hear uh, Judith and I talk about. But I also hear a lot of skepticism that some of the flooding events that we see are very hard to tie to climate change, that they're just seasonal weather patterns. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. We can't say any given data point is a result of climate change, but we can see an increase in trends of these data points, right? And so, and and if that's what the scientists are seeing, or and what they're telling us is the case, is that you know these single data points seem to be coming more and more frequent when you compare them to the trends that happened in the past. I still am having a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that water can be part of the solution here, because. Everything that I've heard scientists say, for the most part, is that water is really heavy, so it's really hard to move. And so where it sort of lands in the ecosystem is where it is. And so this idea that we can somehow harness the power of water, 
Call me skeptical. Well, I think that's what's interesting to me about her book. The subheading is Hope for a Thirsty World. But I think you'll find uh, when you listen to what we talk about that the solution is a little bit more subtle and that water comes in many forms and sometimes it can be as soft as dew and that harnessing dew, for example, might be a way in which we can add more water to our thirsty world. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Judith Schwartz. If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns. It's a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for each other. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. This week's episode focuses on former Marine Todd Love and his unlikely connection to a 9-11 first responder whose family launched the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. The real connection is I know they went to war because of what happened on September 11, 2001. So I think that Stephen, without a doubt, would want us to take care of as many of these great heroes as we can. But most certainly these guys that are coming back that would never have survived before on the battlefield, if not for the advances in in the medical field that they have today. So there's a special need out there. And uh, we didn't know we were going to be part of it and part filling it, but we're very proud we are. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Judith Schwartz. Thank you. Great to be here. So water is a big issue where I live in California, and we've been apparently in a drought for a long time. And then along came El Nino, and it seems like our reservoirs are back up. So is the problem solved now in California? Um, I would say definitely not. Not at all. So why is that? Well, I think that you could look at the drought that you've had in California for a long time and, you know, you can see that as a symptom of a larger problem with water that you're facing and that actually we're all facing, only it's become um, more prominent in California because so much of your um, the agriculture, so much of your industry runs on water and because you have so many people and because it's a, a seasonal dry land environment. So you're going to notice sm- variations in how much rain you get more than you would notice, say, here in Vermont. So that's a good point that, you know, I don't necessarily think of California as a desert, but it's certainly not like Vermont where, you know, there's plenty of rain and lots of fresh water and so forth. So Let's talk about specifically in California, what are the factors other than geography that make it a place where water is so critical? Well, I guess, you know, I I did, I kind of caught myself there because I described much of California as a dryland area. That doesn't mean desert. And one thing that I think is really interesting and what, what I like to do is to think about how an ecosystem, how a particular region functioned in nature in the past. And so it doesn't take long if we start to look into California's past to see that the LA area of all things were actually wetlands. So what we did, so what the LA River, okay, for, for those who haven't seen it, and I only saw it last year, um, and understood what the LA River actually was, it's, it's a, a concrete, a 51 
mile or so long concrete channel, which kind of moves water, rainwater and um, extra, you know, water to be discarded uh, through through the whole LA area and out to the ocean. So the LA River actually used to be a real river. So along the river, you had reeds and wetland areas and all kinds of water plants, and it would occasionally flood. So in the 1930s, after a particularly devastating flood, and as the population of the area was growing, they channelized it. So you didn't have those problems. So on the one hand, you didn't, the good thing is that you didn't have the, the flooding, which was inconvenient and often deadly. But then again, you didn't get the benefit of the water being in contact with the land, the water directly nourishing the land and sustaining the plant life there in a kind of ongoing way and in a seasonal rhythm. So um, also the, the wet, in, in wetlands, in natural wetlands, you have a lot of plants that kind of manage the flow of water and, and kind of when, when, when you get a, a, a lot of water at once it, and you get tides, it sort of holds the water back. Okay, so all these plants, I mean, we've heard of mangroves, of course, but a lot of plants that serve that function. Well, when we come along and we say, you know what, let's just put a barrier here because that'll be more predictable and that'll serve our needs. And then it allow allow us to sell real estate and put these nifty, um, you know, buildings and, you know, organize and, and make our beaches linear and all that. Again, you don't get the benefit of the natural system. So, but we can ask when we're trying, when we look at a place where we have challenges, it can be productive to say, what did, what, what went on in a natural environment here? And that can give us a clue as to what measures we can take because those measures are not always obvious. They don't always adhere to the rules of, of technology and our built environment that we've, and the quick fix that we've often assumed is the way to go. It's kind of an amazing thing to think about. You know, I, I lived in L.A. for a number of years and, and the L.A. River is kind of a joke, right? I mean, it, it really it doesn't seem like a river at all. It's this ki- kind of tiny trickle in this, as you say, this kind of concrete channel. And it's hard to imagine a time in which there were flood dangers coming up from the, from the river. And this is a theme in your book that I think is, is really important for us to understand is, you know, the difference between most of us, or at least for me, I just think of water as water and it flows, especially down a river. And if there's too much of it, it will overflow and flood. And, you know, it's not like there's a ton of water in the LA River. So what has happened, you know, by concretizing its banks uh, that has caused the flow to become so much less? Well, a lot of it is that the, okay, as I said, that the water doesn't have connection with the natural environment. And that's really, really important because when we think about our water challenges and making sure that we have enough water, we tend to look toward rainfall to say, oh, this is a good rain year and that means everything's fine or we're getting less rainfall. And that, and we get the, idea that that is what determines whether or not you have enough water. But actually, the most important water in a land ecosystem is the water that's held in soil. We just don't think about it that way. And because we don't think about it that way, our 
you know, legislation, our our rules of how to manage our environment. Don't we don't even consider that? So that's sort of forgotten river, uh, water. So the thing is that okay. So one of my sources, um, his name is Alan Savory, and we can talk about him later. He's a fellow that many people may have known from his TED talk on how to reverse desertification, and this involved. Um, using livestock as a tool for large-scale land restoration. I can explain that. But the reason I'm bringing him up is that what he says, and it stuck with me, is that it's not a matter of how much rainfall you get, but rather how much what you, how much effective rainfall you have, what you do with that rain. So in the same, in the same way, you, there are, you can have a place where you will be in a state of drought no matter how much rain you receive. And that's because the land is dominated by structures like the LA River, highways, freeways, concrete, sidewalks, and the land that the rain does fall on, you know, the actual land is not capable of holding water. And that could be for many reasons. So a lot of our built environment, the grass is is very compacted, and it can't hold water. I mean, we like to look at a, a lawn and think, ah, at least that's some nature, it's green. But, you know, when you look at the state of compaction, often it's not that different from concrete in terms of how hard that is. And that means that the, the that there's not much pore space in the soil so that the water can't be absorbed. Another really important factor in what allows land to be able to retain water, and you want to retain water because that means that you are more resilient in terms of a drought because the water is held there, but also it's more resilient in case of flooding because if you have a dry patch of land and you get a big rain, well, that's going to cause erosion, that's going to, um, the pollutants are going to be moved moved across the landscape with the water and all of that. But so when you can hold water in the land, that's really important. But oh, I know what I was getting to here, is that the factor that allows soil to hold water is carbon. Okay. So when we think of carbon, we are always thinking in terms of climate change, that there's too much carbon, you know, CO2 going into the atmosphere from mostly from the burning of fossil fuels. However, the flip side of too much carbon in the atmosphere is that there is too much carbon lost from the soil. So our soils are starved of carbon. And when, when there isn't, when there is less carbon in the soil, then you can't hold on to as much water. So to get, put some, some numbers to this, for every 1% increase in soil organic matter on land, okay, and, um, or, soil organic matter is mostly carbon, that represents an extra 20,000 gallons of water per acre that that particular piece of land can hold. So that's pretty extraordinary. So one, one of the things that, motiva that motivated me through this book was hearing about the California drought. And I was so struck that 
Everyone was talking about rainfall and, and snowmelt, and of course snowmelt is important, as is rainfall, but no one was talking about land degradation, whereas that's such a hugely important factor, and that can be reversed. Land can be restored. The process of desertification can be you know, set backwards in motion so that you have land that supports plant life, animal life, microbial life, and holds water. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it seems odd to say, well, you know, part of the problem with LA's water supply is the fact that they built too many highways. Um, you know, it seems like, you know, that, that, that the problem would be that they built these highways on desert land, which was always my understanding. But after reading your book, I realized that's actually not the case. And you know, we can we can talk about, well, does that mean that um, people in L.A. should all have more greenery? And, and certainly I, I know that that would increase the amount of water that people would have to use to keep that greenery alive. Um, so, you know, is that a potential solution for California that we should think about what it is that we're planting? Or do you feel like it's not something that can be done on an individual basis that we have to really think about the entire state and you know, large swaths of land that we're using in different ways? I think it's all of the above. So, so I know that there are many people in Southern California, and we can talk about Northern California in a minute, because I have something I want to mention about that, because it's a different scenario. But all over California, what you grow and how you grow it makes a huge, huge difference. And I know that there are many people that are working along those lines, that there are um, there's a group, the um, Green Gardens group of, lands of landscape designers who understand the importance of what they bring to their clients' land and are working towards the gardens that do store carbon, that do have deeper rooted plants, and, and that's important to the storage of carbon and to the holding of water. And uh, yeah, so plants have so much to do with our our water challenges and solutions. I mean, the more that I that I research that I did for this book, I came to realize that plants are really running the show. I mean, it's really extraordinary. There's a there's a, a fellow that whose work I wrote about. He's an Australian, um, a kind of maverick farmer, horse breeder, author named Peter Andrews, and he talks about how plants manage water now and here's where it gets really interesting and in managing water they manage heat so all of our challenges are interconnected but by as you said by planting wisely and i know that there are programs that help people in different regions do that according to where they are um, keeping the ground covered covered with living plants is the main thing. We can certainly start to ask questions about how we build roads because roads not only are passageways for cars, but they're also conduits for water. And there's so many, so many questions we can, we can ask. And of course, conservation fits in there too. But um, I just want to mention about Northern California. As I said, you can ask questions about how were these landscapes maintained you know, before we came in and dug it up and put highways on, etc. And in Northern California, there were a lot of beavers. There was a lot of wildlife, and beavers are kind of the keystone species that we talk about in uh, when, when we're talking about water because 
they are creating wetlands and they are creating pools for water and they're managing water for us. So um, there are a number of people, including a fellow named Brock Dahlman at the Water Institute at Occidental Arts and Ecology up in Sonoma, who, who started the Bring Back the Beaver campaign because we can kind of re-enlist beavers, bring back beavers, and they can help us manage water. So um, the kind of animal life biodiversity has is so powerful in maintaining our landscapes. And that goes for wildfires too. You know, you had different animals and antelope, different species that were managing the brush and um, also hot, keeping the landscape hydrated. I think it's really useful to think of our challenges as you know, what, what we're facing actually all over the world is the dehydration of our landscapes. And then you can start to think about how you might rehydrate them. So I want to get back to this question of um, what can we plant and just ask if you have any, can you give us a more specific picture of the kinds of plants that keep carbon in the soil? I mean, we're talking about trees. Are we talking about grass? Are we talking about plants that will live in a very you know, particular microclimate in San Francisco, for example? There will be plants that will live in one part but not in another without adding a lot of water to them, which I imagine is probably not what we want. Um, so what what kind of plants seem to be optimal uh, for the solution that you're proposing? My first answer for everything is always diversity, okay? So I would say that there are no bad plants. You know, we think of weeds as, as a bad thing. And, but the thing is that these weeds are, they're the weeds, the plants that we don't want, the annual plants that we kind of turn our nose up at, they are pioneer plants. So they are kind of going out there first and they are kind of, they are preparing the soil for higher order plants. So in terms of building carbon, it's the perennial grasses that are the, the most you know, the, the, the most effective. Trees, of course, are important. And another thing that's important is, is to kind of, for us to kind of step away from the notion of what plants may be competing with each other and just turn that around to see what kind of plants may be supporting each other. So when you look at a, a plant system, you get like, you'll have trees and then you'll have through fall from those trees when you get rain you know it it comes down and then there so there are plants underneath that are getting water kind of meted out more gradually from the through fall from those larger trees then of course you have the trees shading the other plants and another thing that's really interesting you know when i said that plants are running the show. There is so much more going on with plants than we had any idea about that plants do. Okay. When you think about it biologically, so plants have a challenge because they can't move. Okay. So you have a plant in one place and that plant wants to, wants optimal conditions. It wants the minerals and nutrients and the water that it needs. And it has to do all of that from a stationary situation. So what plants can do is they can signal one another. So um, there's a really interesting tree biologist named Suzanne Simard up in British Columbia. And she's done research on how 
plant, how trees kind of share with each other. So you may have, let's say you've got a couple of trees next to each other and one tree goes into leaf early. So that tree needs energy early, you know, earlier in the season than the tree next to it. So the tree that's still in a, you know, dormant phase sends energy to the tree that's going into leaf. And then later on in the season, maybe the other tree is uh, has, is under stress because of a potential pest and needs resources. Well, then that tree will send energy in the other direction. Wait, wait, wait. Now, so now, now you sound like you're, you know, from Northern California, like a lot of people I know. What do you mean by energy? You know, that sounds a little, little hippie. Oh, when I mean literally energy in a very literal sense. By that, by that I mean carbon, the liquefied carbon that plants are producing from photosynthesis, and that they are sending into the soil. And that plants use to trade with each other and to make trades with other organisms in order to get the nutrients that they need. So, yeah. So, um, you know, we talk about carbon trading. Well, there is a whole carbon trading network exchange going on in the soil. It's so fascinating. I feel like we're learning so much more these days, or maybe I'm just learning more about what people have known for decades who study these trees that in fact, you know, what we think of the root system as just something taking water out of the soil um, is much, much more complicated. And as you say, it's actually also putting things back into the soil. uh, And that there is this kind of amazing relationship between uh, different plants in a forest. I think that that's just some of the most fascinating work out there. Absolutely. So it is useful to think in terms of synergies instead of competition. I mean, our view of nature, what we kind of project onto nature, is this Darwinian survival of the fittest, where every every species, every entity out for itself. But so much is actually based on a kind of altruism and symbiosis and interdependencies. And that's that's one thing that's been exciting about doing this this book is to see the interconnectedness. And in terms of water, to see the interconnectedness of water and biodiversity, water and climate, water and food security. And the more we understand those relationships, the more we can not only enhance our own water security, but also address these other challenges, such as biodiversity loss, such as climate change. Because when we talk about how water and climate intersect, often we talk about how it goes one direction, that climate change will affect water sources around the world and will constrain them. And of course, that's true and a really, really big concern. But the opportunity, and what's exciting to me, is how water affects climate and how working with the water cycle allows us to promote cooling in our ecosystems and to really, um, you know, to really help us address climate change on so many different levels. So, yeah, so that's, that's where I get really excited because these are opportunities that we haven't explored. So why don't you walk us through an example of how a relationship with water by changing it uh, can actually help us solve what is probably the biggest environmental problem of our day, which is, you know, a warming climate. Okay. All right. So 
One thing I did in the book is that rather than focusing on water as a kind of thing, as a, you know, you could say as a noun, I looked at water as a verb, you know, how water moves across the landscape and through the atmosphere. So one of the things, one of the nat the ongoing processes of water is transpiration. Okay, we're back to plants again. It's the upward movement of water through plants. So what is important to know about this is that it is a cooling mechanism. So in terms of climate, all right, so let's say you have, you know, we talked about these kind of desertified, degraded landscapes in California where they've lost carbon from um, agricultural practices or from leaving it bare without plants. Okay, so you've got that. All right, so you, you, if, let's say you walk on that bare, deserted, kind of empty lot sort of ground. Well, on a really hot day, it's going to be very hot on your feet. If you walk on um, you know, land where there are a lot of plants, it's going to be much cooler. So the plants, by transpiring, are cooling the surface of that ground. So when we see a desertified land area, we often think maybe that's, that's a, um, you know, a, a symptom, a result of climate change, but it's also a cause because what you do, what's happening is that you're getting solar radiation that hits the ground. It becomes sensible heat. When it hit, when solar radiation hits the ground and there are plants, you have transpiration going on. And when I say that's a cooling process, it is literally taking solar energy and converting it to latent heat that is then brought, you know, wafted back up into the atmosphere and, you know, may kind of, you know, it's, it's in water vapor. So it may go up and join a cloud, become cl clouded or go up and be re-radiated outward. Um, but I think that, um, I'm trying to remember what the figures were, but it, it's something like, you know, the power of this cooling is actually really, really extraordinary. And we, when we don't, when we have a bare desertified landscape that isn't cycling this water, we can think of it as the, the small water cycle, a uh, miniature water cycle. Um, then the, we don't have plants available to cool and manage our climate for us. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, it, it does a lot. And there's there's still a part of me that wonders if we're talking about different magnitudes, you know, that the, the climate change that, we're, that really is affecting us is, you know, something that is increasing global averages by, you know, degrees Celsius and the difference between walking on a, on a few blades of grass versus a half pavement, you know, is that, are, are we talking about the same kind of level of change? But it sounds like, you know, maybe maybe there is evidence that you could uh, really significantly impact, uh, you know, global warming. Well, I, I would say the he heating that we're seeing now is probably from distorted water cycles. Okay, I'm going to say, explain how I view my working definition of climate change. And I, uh, I think it's, this is very useful at least to me, be, let me just, exp I'll just say it. Okay, so um, when we hear the word climate change, often it's kind of a code for global warming from too much CO2 in the atmosphere from burning too much in the way of fossil fuels. So what I think is a useful working definition is climate change is a manifestation of distorted 
carbon, water, and energy cycles. So we can work to rebalance those cycles. So, I mean, it gets really, really hot. If you have a huge, huge area where there are no, or there are very limited transpiring plants and all of the water, uh, all of this, the solar energy is hitting, you know, a built environment, concrete or bare soil, that is significant heating. So I do think it's significant. And then there is a, a source of mine, um, another Australian, his name is Walter Yenna. And he says that 90% or more of climate is determined by hydrological processes. We ha just haven't looked at that. So I'm not saying that CO2 is not a huge, huge factor I'm just not sure that that's what's causing what we're seeing now because there's so much inertia built into the system. So what Walter Yenna has has done, and he, he you can find his work on a website, Healthy Soils Australia, is that he has developed a kind of strategy of 10 ways of using water's cooling properties to help cool the climate. And to me, this is the most comprehensive program I've seen about dealing with climate change, because what it allows us to do is use water's cooling properties to bide time for us to reduce CO2 levels. I mean, it sounds really exciting. And, you know, there's still a part of me that's a little bit skeptical since it's a new idea for me. Um, but I want to turn to some ways in which you know, these relatively seemingly minor changes have led to significant improvements in particular local environments. So you mentioned earlier that one of the ways in which we might be able to reduce the number of wildfires in California is by increasing the grazing behavior of certain animals who can, you know, get rid of some of the really dry brush. And in your book, you talk about a river in Zimbabwe that now flows much longer, a kilometer longer than people remember it ever having flowed because of something called restorative grazing. So can you tell us a little bit about that story? Sure, sure. So this is the fellow that I mentioned before, whose name is Alan Savory, and he developed an approach, uh, um, a kind of framework for um, decision-making using animals that is intended to restore the land. So, so basically, he, after many years as a wildlife biologist, started to obser make observations about the interaction between animals and grasslands, and understood a couple of made had a couple of insights. One is that is that grazing animals and grasslands, and grasslands are about like 40% of the world's landmass, um, not counting Greenland and Antarctica, but it's huge. It's our prairies. It's the African savannas, you know, the steppes. It's all of these different ecosystems. So the grasslands then need the animals in the same way that the animals need the land. And also that land can be undergrazed as well as overgrazed. In other words, that there's an optimal degree of animal impact, but that some animal impact is imperative for these natural systems to thrive. So 
he bought up some land. He is from Zimbabwe and bought up some land and, and donated it to the government so that in a way that, you know, it was agreed that he would manage this land. And by bringing in cattle, because the problem was that they had lost so many of the native animals and not only the native animals, the herbivores, such as the wildebeest and the buffalo and the, um, you know, and, and all different manner of antelopes, but the predators, because the predators were what would keep grazing animals on the move. So basically you move the animals as a predator would, you keep them moving. And so by the animals being active on a, an area of land for a short period of time when they are adding their waste to the soil, which um, hydrates and adds organic matter, and then their nibbling um, has the, it stimulates the growth of the grasses. Of course, they're not nibbling too much. It also, they, it, because they, they're not able to go where they want to go, they're not just eating the choicest of grasses, but um, an, in, enough so that um, all of the grasses get some impact. And it's not like what you lose one species, you know, that is, can't come back. Also, their, their trampling and movement cre um, presses in dead and decaying grasses that, so that they can be broken down by microorganisms and they're pressing in seeds so that you get a diversity of plants. So all this is happening. This is, and, and even their hooves are creating little pools for the water to hold it, to, to remain in. So, um, when you do get rain and so, so all these, all these things are going on. And after, depending on the area, there's one area where in three years, three drought years, actually, I mean, you see this incredible transformation, but for the, the most of the area, it did take some time, but as um, Alan Savory's wife, um, Jody Butterfield, told me, she said, you know, we started seeing some reeds. We started seeing some water held in a wetland area. It was very, very slow. But over time, this river had a whole wetland area. It had more permanent pools so that elephants could go and wallow there. There used to be just one permanent pool where all the elephants would go and, and play in the water and take mud baths. But um, now you had this whole like reviving ecosystem. And Southern Africa is really in a bad way right now with real, like, very distressing implications for food security down there. And I know that, that you know, Alan and, and the people there at the Africa Center for Holistic Management are very concerned. Their land is, is holding its own. You know, they have moisture in the soil. I guess, I guess one way to, one way to articulate what the animals do is that it, it was nature's, nature's way of addressing an ongoing problem in seasonal drylands. There are a lot of parts of the world where they have a rainy season and then a dry season. Okay. So it solves the problem of how do you maintain moisture in the soil, which is necessary to sustain plant and animal life? How do you maintain that from the end of one rainy season to the beginning of the next? And that's what the animals do. They are the vehicle for the, you know, the cycling of moisture in that environment.
your book is really fascinating. You point these very, you paint, so you paint these very hopeful pictures of the ways in which, you know, nature could solve this problem for us. Um, but one of the, you know, sort of takeaways that I have from that is that we kind of have to remove ourselves uh, from the equation. Uh, although there are a couple of examples in which uh, there seems to be a a symbiotic relationship between an urban environment and some of the solutions that you're you're proposing. So I'd like to just end with you know that one of those stories um, in which you know we can still have a large population of human beings, um, but still perhaps use water in a way to solve one of these problems. Well, uh, yeah, I'd like to address this. The the urban wastewater, that's harvesting rainwater, and you can create a, a little urban oasis. And the person there is Brad Lancaster, who has tremendous resources on rainwater harvesting. But I'm thinking of the one, I'm thinking of the couple that I visited in far west Texas, who are getting all of their water needs from condensation, because that's something that we can all do. So they built their, what they call their rain barn, um, in a way that they will collect condensation because of the differential between the heat of the day and the cool breezes at night, that there is moisture in those breezes. So they um, collected rainwater and they didn't know just how much, in fact, they were harvesting until one day, this was about three or four months after the most recent rainfall, when the water tank overflowed. And so this is a really powerful story. And, and I th think of it also because um, the woman that I spent time with there, her name is Catherine, she said something that was exactly to the, to the point, your point of concern about humans and the natural world coexisting. So she said, okay, we are in the Okay, I can never say this word, Anthropocene. Did I do it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so we, there's just not even any question. Okay, we, are, we humans are affecting our environment in so many ways constantly and, you know, on different interlocking um, levels in different ways. So that she said, we can do this mindfully. We can be the beavers on the landscape. So we can be the ones who are the keystone species that creates abundant natural ecosystems, including water-filled wetlands and, and thriving areas that are you know, fully hydrated and very productive in an environmental sense. And um, yeah, that we can do it. We have to we have to know that it's possible, that's the first one, and then start to explore and look to, to nature for solutions because the, the R&D has been you know, in operation a lot longer than for the technological fixes that we're often looking toward. Well, I hope that a lot of urban planners read your book. And in case there are urban planners listening, I want to remind them and all of our listeners that Judith's book, Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Judy, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Excellent. My pleasure. All right. So we had one of the foggiest summers in San Francisco in a number of years. 
Are you suggesting that we start harnessing the fog as a potential solution for some of our water problems? Well, that might not be a bad idea, but as far as I understand it, I'm no meteorologist, but it gets foggier in San Francisco when it's hotter inland, right? That's what causes the fog. So the hotter it gets inland, the foggier it's going to be in San Francisco, which is why I continue to plan on summering in France. I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious because the idea idea of some of these sort of nuanced ways that we can harness water seem a little bit out there for me. More out there than sending mirrors up into the <laughs> into All right, space. Fine. Not more out there than sending mirrors <laughs> to space. But honestly, like it's uh, the frame of this is like is is practicality, especially when it comes to water, because a lot of the conversations on water are about human rights as much as they are about its utility. So I have a hard time imagining when we have such a complicated system of regulations and rights around water that we can start harnessing it in different ways without incurring similar sort of legal battles. I agree with you. And there are times when some of the solutions suggest to me that they're more akin to, you know, biking to work, which doesn't isn't going to have a huge effect. Uh, now, if we all did it, it would have a huge effect. Um, but everybody on the planet would have to bike to work in order to, you know, have see, see that. Am I, not, I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm exaggerating. But so that left me a little bit wanting um, in terms of what Duith is talking about. At the same time, I feel like it's looking at water in a new light. And if we can get more people thinking outside the box and thinking creatively, then maybe we can find other solutions. I mean, you see now even the harnessing of wind for energy being more and more common, Where, whereas, you know, a few decades ago, maybe that would have been something that people thought, oh, nobody's going to allow you to put this big, you know, what looks like a fan on your beautiful hillside. And yet that's becoming more common. So, you know, if, if we can implement some of these ideas, uh, then I think there could be a potentially pretty great effect. You know, all we're ever asked about in terms of water here is just to conserve it. Take shorter showers, maybe have drought-resistant landscaping. We're not asked for anything more than that around water. Do you see a, a sea change? Pardon the pun. <laughs> um Again, I don't think this is going to become mainstream anytime quickly, much to, you know, potentially my dismay. Um, again, I don't know how practical a lot of these solutions are. But I also think that, you know, you just like putting solar panels on your roof, collecting rainwater in places or collecting dew in Texas, you know, might not be so outlandish and it might not be so difficult. And if it can somehow benefit the individual the way solar panels can in some cases, then I don't see why people wouldn't want to do that. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of your dew farm or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by notorious water abuser Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week.
Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, learn about former Marine Todd Love and his unlikely connection to a 9-11 first responder whose family launched the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.